As we think and consider the gospel of Jesus Christ, we consider God's activity in human history. One of the questions that often should come to our minds is why is God doing what he does? Why did God choose to create humanity? Why did God choose to save sinners? Why does God do any and everything that he does? Well, I trust that the Bible doesn't answer all of those questions. There are a lot of why questions that we face in our life. Why did this happen to me, to my family? Why did that happen to them and not to me? That question why is a hard question. But thankfully the Bible does answer some of life's why questions. And this morning we're going to think about one aspect of why God chose to freely save sinners. Uh, Over the last few weeks, we've considered another aspect of why uh, God saves ultimately for his own glory. In other words, God doesn't save necessarily for ourselves, for our benefit, though we do receive benefit. Uh, The fundamental and, and a really overarching reason why God has chosen to save sinners was and is for his own sake. That's what we ended with last week. Thinking about God saving sinners as a way to display his character among the cosmos. That angelic beings that God has created Uh, kind of stare in on the work God is doing in our lives, that they might revel in the glory of God and the wonder and power of God. Later in chapter 3 of Ephesians, Paul will spend some time thinking more about this purpose and really honing in on that purpose by saying that, well, it's the local church that is the expression of, Locally here, where God is glorified, when sinners gather together under the lordship of Christ and worship, Paul goes so far as to say that even today, as we gather, angels are looking in, in awe and wonder of what God has done through Christ. I remember many years ago hearing a sermon that Lloyd-Jones did on Ephesians 3 where where he was just taken in by this glorious picture that in the local church, angels occupy their time, not through action, but by staring in awe of what God is doing. This is why God saves, for his own glory. And throughout this letter of Ephesians, we see one theme elevated really above the rest, which is God's glory in grace. That God is a gracious God. 
God is a good God. And this attribute of God, Paul sort of picks up and, and, and holds it out and says, look at how great and glorious God is. And so throughout this time, we have thought about sort of the foundation in Ephesians chapter 1, sort of looking at the 30,000 foot view, if you will, of what God is doing in redemptive history. Um, that God has given us these blessings in Christ. He saved us. This sort of eulogy or praise to God has led Paul then to prayer and praise where he is not only praising God, but also praying that the Ephesian church would know God's greatness, that they would know God better. But from there, what he has done is kind of gone from the 30,000 foot view, which is a gloriously beautiful picture, and descended down to a more close up, a more detailed picture of the individual Christian's life. In other words, Paul doesn't want them just to see God's at work out there, but that God's at work in here. And so in chapter 2, Paul picks up with this uh, more detailed, close-up picture of the Christian life. Thinking in detail about God's power and greatness in our lives individually, Then he will, in the latter half of chapter 2, go to the corporate. From the individual to the we have been united. Those who were without hope, God is united into a body. He is creating a new humanity. A new people. Once it was the people of Israel that were set apart to display his glory now. It's the new created people in Christ that God sets out into the world through the local church to display his glory. Just as the nation of Israel was to display God's glory among the nations, so now the church in God's redemptive plan is to display God's glory to the nations. Well, now that we've kind of got ourselves back In our context, let's look here in chapter 2. So I invite you to turn to chapter 2 this morning again. And we'll be finishing up this paragraph this morning in verses 8 through 10. Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, what is Paul's point? Paul's point is this, that God has graciously saved sinners to make them holy. While we are not saved by good works, we are saved Two good works. Uh, While God does not consider anything in us to be meritorious or worthy of salvation, he promises that in salvation he will make us worthy of praise. He will make us righteous. 
And so this morning, I want us to look here in verses 8 through 10 and consider three reasons really why salvation must be by grace alone. Why salvation must be by grace alone. First, you'll see that you didn't deserve it. Secondly, you'll see you didn't earn it. And finally, you'll see you didn't make it. You didn't bring it about. First, in chapter 2 and verse 8, you'll see there that Paul says you didn't deserve salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Uh, The word for there is giving us the uh, explanation, the ground, the reason. He's saying, listen, salvation is by grace. Paul here is picking up with what he began with in verse 5. Back in verse 5, you'll note there that he had a sort of a side. It was as if he was so excited to to say this, he, he couldn't contain himself. And so he kind of burst out there in verse 5 by saying, by grace you have been saved. Well, he picks back up here in verse 8 with the idea again, emphasizing to the Christian that you have been saved by grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor and disposition towards sinners. It is undeserved. As we'll see in a moment, it's also unearned, but The idea of grace is that it is undeserved. It's not something that God looks in us and says, man, that one there deserves to be saved. I wasn't very good at sports. Sometimes I prouded myself on thinking I was good at sports, but I wasn't often. And I always dreaded when we had to pick teams. Because I was never one that said, oh, that's the one I want on my team. And sometimes we think that that's what God did. In eternity past, he sort of kind of got the the roles out. He says, all right, who do I want on my team? Who do I want to write my book? And he began to look down the list. I want him on my team. I want her on my team. That's not true. God saves by grace, which means you don't deserve it. Now, we've been considering over the last few weeks what we do deserve, right? We deserve God's wrath because of our willful rebellion against him. This is what Paul began with in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. In other words, everyone was guilty We weren't just passively involved in sin. We were actively involved in sin. We were walking in them. And so Paul is here contrasting what we deserve with what we don't deserve. To be saved by grace means that we do not merit God's love in Christ. And if we did not merit his love, then by reason... We cannot unmerit his love. If we didn't deserve God's grace, then it stands to reason that we can't undeserve it. We started in a place of sin and by grace he has rescued us. Paul says that we have been saved. 
by grace. We've been saved. What have we been saved from? Well, we've been saved from our sin. Uh, We've been saved from the death that our sin resulted in, right? Paul tells us that the wages of sin is death. The result of sin is death. But more than that, we are saved from God's just wrath. God saves us from himself. Because God is holy and just, God must punish sin. God cannot allow sinners to go free. So in the Christian gospel, we do not believe that God sweeps our sin under the rug. God doesn't look at our sin and our mistakes and say, you know what, try harder next time. God doesn't look at our sin and say, you know, I understand uh, you're broken human beings and because of Adam, you're infected. I get all that. You know, I'm just going to, you know, be loving and and say it's okay. You know, kind of like the grandparent, right? A lot of grandparents in here, right? You know, you let those grandkids get away with way too much, right? You you know you do, right? You can confess that to Jesus later. Um, But, right? That's how we view God. Like that we just let, you know, that he's just letting us off the hook. God never lets sin off the hook. God never sweeps sin under the rug and thanks be to God, lest our sin come crawling back out after us. God deals with our sin in the death of Christ. Uh, This is what he dealt with in verses four through seven. Uh, be through the death of Christ, we have been raised. Uh, he dealt with our sin so as to save us from his wrath. Therefore, the Christian gospel teaches that what Christ did was absorb all of God's wrath for his elect people. Meaning that there is no more wrath left. It's all been drank up. It's all gone. Therefore, this morning, as Christians, God has saved us by God's free grace. It's free. It cost us nothing. But it cost Jesus his life. Notice here also that Paul says that this gracious salvation is received through faith in Christ's finished work. Paul says that we are saved by grace through faith. Uh, Twice here in this short sentence in verse 8, he says the means of salvation is grace and this means of salvation is faith. Now, does Paul mean that we have somehow uh, merited uh, through faith? In other words, is faith a work? No, he's going to clarify that here in just a moment. We'll, We'll consider that. Faith is trusting in the finished work of Christ. Uh, The word itself means confident assurance, a dependability, uh, a confidence that what Jesus did actually accomplished what he set out to do. It's one thing to say, I believe in Jesus, right? It's one thing to, to say, I believe in God. It's an entirely different thing to say, I believe in the resurrection. And some this morning may say, man, I believe that Jesus lived and Jesus died And Jesus rose again. But friend, that is insufficient. That is insufficient for salvation. 
Salvation is not merely believing that some things happened to some individual some time in the past. If we were to, you know, grab a, a demon and ask him, hey, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe Jesus died? Do you believe Jesus rose from the grave? Oh, they would say yes to all of those things. This is what James reminds us, that even the demons believe and shudder. Well, what is Paul speaking about here? Well, he's not meaning that we believe a set of facts, but that we trust in those facts. And in other words, that there is saving faith. Uh, this is the belief that the demons don't have. They're not trusting in Christ for a better life. They're trusting in themselves. And, and as, as Christians, we are not uh, merely believing fact, but we are believing and trusting that that facts bring about life. So we are trusting in the finished work of Christ. Uh, we receive it by faith. Uh, this is why Paul will say in a moment that it's a gift from God, a gift received. Faith is not work, but rather receiving that which we did not do. And we trust that what the Lord has done, he has done for us. And so we have been saved by grace. And I want to, before we move on here, note one more thing. We didn't deserve it. I want you to see something else here. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved. Paul throws all of this in the past. He says you have been saved. He doesn't say you're going to be saved or you might be saved or there's a possibility if everything works out right. No, he says you have been saved. Brother, sister, this is a promise for us this morning. Now, of course, elsewhere, Paul will use the present. You are being saved or you will be saved. He, he will use that. But here he is settling in on confidence that God has saved you. It's done. It's finished. And so we live in light of this finished work of Christ. It's it's complete. This is why salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone. We don't deserve it. Well, secondly, you'll see here in verse 8 that we didn't earn it. You didn't earn it. Not only didn't you deserve it, but you didn't earn it. You didn't do anything to merit this work. Look what Paul writes in verse 8. He says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. And this, what does the this refer to? Does it refer to faith or salvation? Both. <laughs> Paul here is making a very great and grand sweeping statement that this, salvation and faith, that, that you believing in Christ is not based on human effort or personal performance. Salvation is by grace, meaning that there is nothing that we do to somehow merit God's love. There's not a good deed that we can do. You know, oftentimes we place our faith in the visible, what we can see. We place our faith Perhaps in our moral good, that we've done X, Y, and Z. 
we also will place it in that moral category by justifying ourselves over and against others. I'm not like them. I mean, how often are you tempted when you watch the news and you see the crime and you, and you conclude that oh, God must love me because I'm not out doing those things. I'm not like those heathens. Oh no, friend, you are exactly like them. And by God's grace, he's withheld you from those things. Perhaps we put our faith in our religious activity, our Bible reading, our prayers, our attendance, all good things. Perhaps we put our faith in our positions in society, through our jobs, through our education. I have this degree, therefore God must be happy with me. I have attained this level in my professional pursuits. God must be impressed with me. Brothers, sisters, there is nothing that you did to earn salvation There's nothing you will do ever in your life to merit God's love for you in Christ. And of course, as Paul approaches this from the negative, he seeks to highlight the positive. If you didn't earn it, you can't unearn it. If there was no no activity you did, then you ceasing to do that activity means that you're not going to lose it, right? I mean, we, re- we trust this exchange in our jobs, right? We go to work, we work a set number of hours, and we get a paycheck at the end of the week, right? We import work, output money, right? That's not the transaction of salvation. Also, if you don't go to work, you don't get paid, right? You don't show up to work. You don't put in the time. At some point, your employer is going to say, you know what? I'm not going to pay this fool anymore because they're not showing up to work. Oh, friends, the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't this kind of economy. Christ does all the work and we get the big paycheck. Christ does this work and we receive the benefits of his finished work. And so we merit it because of Christ's meritorious work. Oh, friends, this is why we want to meditate often on the gospels you read the Gospels? Remember, it's not only Christ's death, but his life. So all of those wondrously good deeds that Christ did in the Gospels, that's what God sees in you. That's what he sees you like. So all those times you fail to read your Bible and you get all discouraged and you think, man, God's just sort of shut me off and, you know, he doesn't love me anymore. All those times you don't pray, just go to the Gospels and see where Jesus ran and he was hiding out praying. And no, that's how God sees you. He sees you that way in Christ. Well, Paul goes on to say that that while it is not of our own effort, our own doing, nor a result of some work that we've done, and and he doesn't mean here um, sort of Old Testament kind of you know law work. He just means general work, like good deeds. Right. Generic. So he's not speaking of something specific here, but rather generically, you know, our moral best trying to earn God's love. He rather contrasts it positively there in the middle. This is not your own doing. It is, though, he says, the gift of God. Salvation is a gift. A gift. Now. 
in our culture, our gift giving has confused us about the gospel. In our culture, we have this, this system of reciprocity. I give you a gift. You feel pressured and socially obligated to give me a gift back. How often have you received something from, from someone, maybe a coworker, a friend, family member, and there's this sort of initial thought, oh my gosh, now I have to get them something. Friends, that's not the gospel. We get sucked into this kind of thinking in our culture, and then we kind of go to the Bible and say, oh, okay, God gave me a gift. I've got to get him something. I've got to do something for him. I've got to somehow merit his favor. He's going to think I'm a loser if I don't give him something really great back. No, our motive in sanctification isn't to impress God because of the gift of salvation. We'll see in a moment what, what our motivation is. But so often that's the, our approach. Uh, salvation is a gift. Uh, when two couples get married, uh, oftentimes uh, in the marriage they, they come with their own personal uh, property, right? Uh, they might uh, have a few things, pots and pans or something like that, or, or you know, money. You know, it could be several things, right? And they come together in this union, and, and all of those possessions become one. What Paul is saying is that in our marriage with Christ, we have nothing to bring to the marriage. That God brought everything, and we brought nothing to the table. Nothing. We came with nothing, as we'll sing in a moment. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Nothing. It's a gift to be received. There's nothing in our hands, no goodness in us. And you see here kind of what it produces in us, he says, so that no one may boast. Uh, throughout this section, Paul has used purpose statement after purpose statement after purpose statement to make clear the purpose of salvation is not really about you, but about God. It's by grace, not by work. It's God's gift, not your pr production. And finally, in verse 9, he says, so that no one may boast. No, not no one, right? No one. The gospel of Jesus Christ ought to produce a, a really weighty sense of humility. You've all heard, better than I deserve. You know, how are you doing today? Better than I deserve. Friends, that is the posture of the Christian life. Uh, we trust that whatever position we are currently in, it is way better than what we ultimately deserve, which is death. The very fact that God even puts up with us for, for a nanosecond is gloriously gracious. I mean, consider for a moment. I mean, Adam and Eve rebel against God. They sin. They, they, I mean, they spit in his face and say, you know what? We think we could run this world a lot better than you. What does he do? He doesn't like, you know, just instantly they're gone. No, he's patient with them. He's gracious with them. Oh, you think about those 400 years before the exile when, when the Israelites were just off on a beaten path. And they were way off the center line. 400 years went by before God stepped in and said, all right, that's enough. Enough's enough. Our God is immensely patient and gracious towards us. Therefore, it produces in us a sense of humility. Uh, brother, sister, we should be the most humble people in all the world. In fact, the world should know us by our humility. 
we did not deserve it. And we did not earn it. You're here today as a Christian, if you are a Christian this morning, not because of anything in you. That should crush you. That should humble you. That should encourage you this morning. That God has graciously given us salvation, not because of any works done in us, but for his own glory. Well, Paul goes on in in verse 10 to say, you didn't make it. Well, you didn't deserve it, you didn't earn it, and you didn't make it happen, he says. Look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. First, we see here God's creative power. Uh, Paul strings together all the words that mean creation in the Greek language. He puts them all together and he, and he says, look, look at what he says. He says, we are a workmanship. We are a creation, you know, a work, right? We've been worked. We've been made. Then he goes on to say, we've been created in Christ Jesus. Then he goes on to say that God prepared them. He made them happen. Three times there, he's emphasizing that God has created power. That once was dead has been brought to life by God's creative power. That's been the theme, right? We were dead in our trespasses and sin, verse 4. But God made us alive together with Christ. What was dead has been made alive. Well, what is he speaking about there? But God's creative power. God creates something new. He's referring here to the new creation. That we are not the same, but we are different. God doesn't resurrect us to be better versions of ourselves, but new creations in Christ. Well, this is what Paul will go on on onto in verse in chapter four. Just flip over really quickly to chapter four. It'll make sense here, hopefully. Uh, Paul's laying the foundation here in verse ten, for which he will build on in the exhortations that he'll give in chapter four, verse seventeen. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, excuse me, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Like exclamation point. He smacks him. He says, stop it. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him. Uh, I, I, just a quick note there. That's one of Paul's sort of passive-aggressive attack. He's like, you know, if you don't act right, if you're, if you're not pursuing holiness, he's saying, I don't think you really heard or heard the gospel. So he's, he's sort of digging at him a little bit there. Um, notice what he goes on. To, he says that as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, what I want to say here is that passage would be incredibly burdensome to everyone in this room. If verse 10 in chapter two were not true. 
In other words, if we were not new creations in Christ Jesus, this would be a lot of hard work and be impossible to accomplish. We would fail flat on our face every day of the week if we tried to do this. That's why Paul has that clarifying, assuming that you've heard of the gospel. In other words, if you don't actually believe and have saving faith in Christ and have been born again, don't try this. Danger, danger, you will fail. And he clarifies here that God has created us new, therefore live in light of this new creation. In other words, act like what you are. You're a new creation. So act like it. But here we see back to verse 10 in chapter 2. The point that Paul is making here is that we Christians are God's work. In other words, he created us. We were spiritually dead and he breathed life into us again that we might live for his glory. This is similar, of course, to what Paul says in in Philippians 1, that he who began a good work in you. In other words, God started it and he's going to finish it. Uh, This is why we sing, he will hold me fast, because we know and trust that throughout life that God will get us to the destination he has in mind. And it is through his creative power. God is able to do this. Now, does it stand to reason why Paul spent time in chapter 1 in verses 15 through 23 making sure that they knew the greatness of God? Or why he'll conclude that prayer in chapter 3 in verse 21 uh, that we would know all that he is able to do? Well, of course. As Christians, we rest in this creative power of God. God is doing it. God is creating us new. The burden is not for you to carry. The burden for you in sanctification is to know that you will be like Jesus in the end. Every time you fail to grow in righteousness, every time you struggle in your sanctification, every every time you get frustrated and you're like, I hate my life, I hate my sin, I just can't get free. You go back and you revel in this promise that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good work. He made us for good works. He made us. We're not like our old self anymore. Made for corruption. Now we are made for righteousness. We have a new heart. A heart bent not on sin, but a heart bent on goodness and righteousness and God's glory. What we see here, that was why God, here's the purpose. God's creative purpose is that we would be holy. God has saved us that we might be holy. Uh, Paul began in verse 1 that we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked. Notice how he ends which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In what? In good works. Once we walked in sin, once we lived our lives in sin, but now, he says, 
you have been created new. And this new creation walks in righteousness and holiness. Uh, brothers and sisters, this is what gives the, why the gospel is so encouraging to us this morning. Because we are not under the burden of our need to merit and deserve and earn God's salvation. That we have been saved by God to be holy. When you wrestle in your sin and, and strive for holiness with what, without which no one will see the Lord, when you're in the midst of that striving and you fail, the promise is here. The encouragement is here that we will walk in them. Paul's point also is clear and frighteningly so. That if we are not walking in good works, that we have no hope of eternal life. In other words, if the fruit doesn't show, then the root must have some issues. Jesus reminds us that his disciples will be known by their good works, by their fruit. And if there's no evident growth in grace in our life, then we need to go to the doctor, if you will, spiritually. We need to go to Jesus and repent of our sins and trust in him. Paul makes clear throughout this book that we can't continue to live in sin and think everything's okay. Paul is not making excuses for sin. He's not saying it's okay to live in sin. But rather, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. Many of you know that a few months ago, because I don't have enough things to do in my life, uh, our family decided to purchase a little animal to uh, enjoy. And it has quite been a sanctification process for me uh, to grow in grace. My first approach to this was I, I seemed to struggle training up children, so maybe I can try to train a dog. And there was a sense of hope in that. Early on, Jessica and I made a commitment that, hey, we were going to financially invest to making sure that this dog actually behaved. If we couldn't get five children to behave, at least one thing in our home would actually listen. And so just two weeks ago, well, over the last few months, we've been doing training, and, and uh, a few weeks ago, we entered into official, you know, big dog, you know, school, and uh, it's a grueling, um, it's daily, I have to do work, and taking videos, and having to post them, and the trainer, uh, you know, observes them, and uh, we go to class and we do all of this, this work and effort and putting all of this in. Well, well, just this last week, uh, we, we kind of went into the next stage, the next level, right? I was feeling good. Uh, we, had, we had knocked out week one. We were, I mean, blazing. We were looking hot. We were looking good. Well, I entered into week two with a sense of confidence uh, based on the, the, the good performance of, of week one. And as I entered into week two, I began with pride to, to enter into this work. And we were doing our work and taking our videos. And the exercises take a good 30 minutes plus to, to go through. And so we went out and I set up and videoed and we did the work. Well, as we were doing the work, let me tell you, it was as if this dog had lost its, its mind. Um, 
leaves were blowing all over. I mean, it just could not focus on anything. I'm tripping, kicking it. I mean, it is just trying to teach it how to walk on a leash. I mean, this isn't rocket science. Well, I wrap all this up and post the video in, in, our, in our group, and, and, uh, and, and I did the work. I, I, I followed directions. I corrected her the way. Well, then came the comments, and they were long. <laughs> I pretty much failed. And, and I'll be honest with you, I was really mad at myself. I was mad at the trainer. I was like, you know what, dude? I mean, I did all the work. You know, I did what you said. I mean, I did exactly what you said, and I was mad. I mean, Wednesday, I was, you didn't want to be around me. Nobody could talk to me. I was mad. And late Wednesday night, a thought came in my mind. God, thank you that this is not our relationship. God, thank you that you're not like that trainer telling me all the ways I mess up all the time and all the ways I fail. Thank you that, that I've been saved by grace and not by my personal performance. Because if I was saved by my personal performance, if you were saved by your personal performance, oh, that's a burden that Christ has not called you to carry. Christ has taken that burden and says, I will do it. I will live the life. I will do all. I will jump through all the hoops. I will do everything that my father demands of you. I'll do it for you. And I will die the death your sin deserves. I will save you by my righteous life. And I will make you righteous. And I promise that when I'm done with you, you will look just like me. You will believe just like me. You will know the Father just like me. Trust in me. And you will be holy. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful this morning that you have saved us by grace alone. Through Christ alone. That the burden of work righteousness is not ours to carry. We, this morning, stand in awe of your grace, the perfect life of Christ, the perfect death, all for us sinners. Father, make us holy as Christ is holy. Let us rest in him alone. Save us, we pray, through Christ. Amen.